Zach and his wife Julie have been on stamp, uh, staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for over 20 years. He, when he was young, Zach grew up in Hungary and was in Hungarian school for six years. Most of their work has been in youth ministry. They have served overseas in Hungary and China. Zach and Julie have two boys, Eli and Jasper, and in his free time, Jack, Zach enjoys movies and video games. So this morning, we want to welcome to our stage, Zach Anderson. Good morning, everybody. This is indeed a treat and a tremendous privilege for me to be here. And uh, as I was thinking about what I might share with you this morning, I realized that probably the best thing to get started is for me to share a quick personal story with you to sort of set the stage for what it is that we might talk about this morning. As you just heard, uh, Hungary is a country that is very close to my heart. I spent a good chunk of my childhood living in Hungary, and then just after I got married, my wife and I moved to Hungary to work with high school students, and for the first few years that we were living in Hungary and working, we pretty much consumed our lives with work. We didn't do a lot in terms of vacations, but after the first two or three years there, we decided, well, let's do something that a lot of Hungarian people do during their summer times. Let's look for something that we can do for a short one or two week vacation. And so in the month of August, it just so happens that for some reason, that's the month Hungarian people choose for vacations. And so we looked and we found out it's possible during the month of August to get very cheap airline flights from the country of Hungary to the country of Egypt. Now, I'd never been to Egypt before, and I thought, now that would be a great experience. So we bought our tickets, and I was anxiously waiting for the day that we were going to get on the airplane and travel to the country of Egypt. And as I'm waiting, I'm thinking to myself, now, when I go to Egypt, I don't just want to go to Egypt and do all the same things in Egypt that I normally do back home in Hungary. In other words, I don't want to go to Egypt and eat at McDonald's. I can do that anywhere. Instead, if I go to Egypt, I want to eat Egyptian food. I want to meet Egyptian people. I want to soak up the culture as much as I can. And so I was very ready for this trip. And finally, the day arrived, we got on the airplane, we began to fly over the beautiful blue Mediterranean Sea, and I'm, I'm looking out the airplane window, I'm, I'm seeing the blue of the water down there, and I'm just thinking, ah, oh, it is coming, this thing that I've been waiting for. And then I look out the window, and I see way off in the distance, there's kind of a change. Way off in the distance, there's no longer the color blue, there's this thin little strip of tan brown color. And I'm not sure what it is, and then it dawns on me what I'm looking at, just the beginning of the sands of the deserts of Egypt. And soon, a couple minutes later, we've left the water far behind, we're looking down, and I can practically imagine the Egyptian sun baking off the sand and looking at it from the height of where we're flying, and then once again, I notice there's a little bit of a change. And I see down there on this brown platform below me, I see this thin, winding strip, stripe of green, and then it dawns on me. What I'm looking at from the flight 
height of the airplane is the River Nile, one of the grandest, most famous rivers in the world. And I'm just getting more and more excited. So finally, the plane touches down, the door opens, we get off, we can feel the heat, and then that evening at the hotel, we have a chance to find out what is going to be our first meal in Egypt. So I'm going down, looking at all the different options. I need a giant platter filled with hamburgers, and I'm thinking, I don't want the hamburgers. And I'm looking, there's steak. I don't need the steak. And I look, I see there's a platter of something that I don't recognize. I get a little closer, and there's a little sign in front of the platter, and this is what the sign says. Fish from the river Nile. And I think, oh, it's like a sign. I saw the river from up in the air. Now I can take something that was swimming in that water and I can put it in my body. And so I took a giant piece of fish, put it on my plate, and I ate it. There is a famous long-distance swimmer whose name is Lynn Cox. And she wrote a book called Swimming to Antarctica. And in this book, she talks about some of the famous long-distance swims that she has undertaken. And in the book, as you might imagine from the title, indeed, she once swam from the southern tip of South America through frigid waters to the continent of Antarctica. Many times she has gone across the English Channel. But in this book, she says, by far, one of the hardest swims she ever had to undertake was the time that she decided to try to swim the River Nile. Because the River Nile is one of the dirtiest, most polluted rivers in the world. She said, as she was swimming through the water, she said it felt like she was swimming through warm oil. And as she's swimming through the water, she said she could see things floating by her on the water that you don't want to see in a river. And of course, as you can imagine, as you're swimming, you're kind of going like this, and one hand's going down below the water, and all of a sudden she feels this hand enter the water, and she said she felt it punch through something under the surface of the water that was soft and spongy. She pulled her arm back, and she saw she had just pushed her arm through the carcass of a dead dog. Now, I ate a fish <laughs> that had been swimming in that water. And about halfway through the next day, I start to get that feeling. You know, we've all had that feeling before. It's sort of like your body saying to you, you're not sick yet but you will be. <laughs> Toward evening, I knew I was not going to be able to eat anything. But my wife said, that's fine, you don't have to eat anything, just, just come with me to the cafeteria, sit down at the table with, at that time we only had one son, our young son Eli, she said, just sit at the table and wait for me to go get food for me and Eli, then you can go back, Zach, to the hotel room and do whatever it is you have to do. And so I said, well, <laughs> I'll try. And so I sat there, and as I was sitting there, 
waiting for my wife to get back. I can just feel this stuff in my stomach rising. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to take it. And as I'm sitting there, I am not joking, I see people begin to sit down at the tables all around my table, and every single person on their plates, they have the fish. It was like the fish was slowly, silently surrounding me. And if they had eyes, these pieces of fish would have been looking at me like, you know, we did this to you. And I didn't know if I could take it. Finally, my wife gets back and, and, and I said, I'm, 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 I'm gone. And so I stood up and easily one of the longest journeys of my life was when I had to walk across the hotel lobby to get back to our hotel room. Because as I'm sure you know, the hotel lobbies are filled with things that you shouldn't vomit on. You know, like beautiful Egyptian rugs or grand pianos or other people. And finally, I made it back to the hotel room. I flung open the door to the bathroom. I went in and I spent a long night there, just me and the toilet. And I share this admittedly very disgusting story with you with my apologies to say the decisions that we make really do have consequences. Now, I am so excited for the senior class, the people who have a chance to embark on this trip that's coming up. Because I can remember getting ready for certain trips like this myself. And I can tell you, and those of you who have already been on trips like this, you know, when you go on a trip like this, it's like you are holding out before the Lord a treasure chest. And over the course of the trip that you take, he is going to fill that treasure chest with incredible experiences and incredible memories that you will then take with you in this treasure chest for the rest of your life. And there will be times in the future when you'll be able to open that treasure chest and take out those memories, and you're going to marvel that God used you in that way in the lives of those people. But before you get ready for this trip, and for those of you who are staying back here and praying for the people who are going, I also want to give you a, a special challenge that doesn't always get shared before these kinds of trips happen. Because the reality is, this is going to be an incredible experience. But it's also possible that some of the things that you experience on this trip, they're going to be hard. You might encounter some experiences that you were not expecting, and you might think to yourself, I didn't know that this trip was also going to involve struggle or suffering. But sometimes it's in those moments that the Lord actually reaches us most deeply. And as I look back on my own personal experience being involved with missions work over the years, I can tell you for a fact, sometimes it's those experiences that impress upon us most deeply. And those are the memories that I actually remember most from other people who I've talked with, who God has used in other parts of the world. There was, for example, 
friend of my wife and, my, and, and mine, a, a young woman named Hope, who for many, many years worked as a missionary living in Indonesia. And in Indonesia, she lived under very primitive circumstances. She was in a small little cabin. She had to cook her food on a rickety gas stove. And Hope, one morning, was packing up her stuff to get ready to travel from one island to another island. And as she was getting her stuff ready, her roommate was in the kitchen cooking breakfast on this old gas stove. And Hope was in there getting stuff ready, and suddenly she heard from the direction of the kitchen a huge explosion. The gas stove had exploded, and it covered her roommate with burning gas. And Hope ran into the kitchen, and she said, I saw my roommate lying there on the ground, screaming. And she said, do you know what she was screaming? She was screaming, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. That's remarkable that at that moment in her roommate's life, when she was so deeply affected by physical pain, those were the words on her lips. But I can tell you, as living in Hungary, as my wife and I did for so many years, we didn't have to necessarily travel to the country of Indonesia on the other side of the world to meet people who had experienced difficulty and suffering in the ministry that they were involved with for the Lord. Right next door to the country of Hungary is the country of Romania. And Romania, during the time of communism and socialism, was under great oppression. And there was a very famous pastor who lived in Romania for many, many years, and he rose up and, and did much of his best teaching during the time that he was most persecuted. Many times he was locked up in prison and in fact tortured for the fact that he was a Christian. And later, when he was free and the country of Romania was no longer under oppression, people, newspaper reporters, would come to him and ask him, what was it like to be tortured for your faith in Christ? And this Romanian pastor named Richard Wormbrand, he said, do you want to know what it was like? He said, you can find out for yourself. He said, take a teaspoon, fill the teaspoon with salt, swallow the salt, and then try to wait just one hour before you drink water. He said, after one hour, your whole body will be just screaming in thirst. And then he said, now try to remember me and my comrades as we were there in prison. And the prison guards would give us four, five, six heaping tablespoons filled with salt and then not give us drink for hours. But this Romanian pastor said, as he looked at the camera that was doing this interview, he said, do you realize that Jesus always chose suffering? Jesus looked for suffering. He sought it out. He found the people who were most deeply hurt. Those are the ones 
that he ministered to. And there are people in the Bible who have learned that lesson so well. They are, they are some of my heroes. Let me read to you a very familiar passage that all of you know. One of these particular heroes of the Bible who understands what it means to give your life for something greater than yourself but experience difficulty along the way. I'm going to read this out loud. If any of you happen to have brought your Bible and you want, you can read along, but you don't have to. I'm going to read this out loud. This is in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, to really understand this passage intently and deeply, we have to understand something about this man, Paul, that was true about him, just a few chapters before this in the book of Acts. Because anybody who knows anything about the life of Paul, we know just a little bit before that, he was a completely different man. In fact, he had a different name. His name was Saul, and he hated the Christians. In fact, there he was on the road to Damascus, holding in his hand the paper that was going to allow him to persecute the Christians. And you know the story. Suddenly, there's a brilliant flash of light. Paul, Saul, becomes blind, and he hears out of this light the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then three days of blindness. What would it be like to be blind for three days? You could try it for yourself. You could close your eyes right now and not open them again until Saturday. And if you did that, do you know what would happen? It would change your life. On Saturday, when you opened your eyes after three days of darkness, you would marvel that you had ever taken sight for granted before. You would see the colors jumping out at you, and you would be astonished that you'd never noticed them like that before. And then there's Paul, not knowing this is only going to last for three days, probably sitting there in the darkness. And I have to imagine, he can just hear the words of Jesus echoing in his head, why are you persecuting me? So that three days later, 
when his eyes are opened, it's no longer Saul, it's Paul who has sight. And it's this guy who is in prison right now in this story that we just read. Now, if you are one of the other prisoners with, the, with Paul, if you know anything about Paul, you already know how this is going to go. You're thinking to yourself, after the doors are flung open, yeah, it's late. We could be sleeping. But I know Paul. I know we're not going to be sleeping. We're going to be praying and singing songs long into the night. So, okay, Paul, go ahead. We'll do it your way. And then suddenly, the doors fly open. The way out is clear. And if you are one of the prisoners there with Paul, I guarantee you are thinking to yourself, Paul, yes. I got to hand it to you, Paul. It was your idea to do the praying and the singing, and you knew Paul, God, was going to do something. Paul, let's go. But if you're Paul, and if you've already experienced in your life the kinds of things that God has done, you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, guys, yeah, we could go. But I got to tell you, there's something really familiar about this. Because if we leave, that jailer, he's going to kill himself, never having met my Jesus. And so I tell you what, we're not going to go. We're going to do something I learned a long time ago. We're going to stay here in the dark just a little bit longer. And the rest of the story just writes itself. I mean, the jailer comes out and he asks them, tell me, what do I have to do to be saved? Imagine challenging a guy like that to go on a missions trip to the Dominican Republic. Imagine challenging him to start a Bible study in his neighborhood. His life was changed because Christians decided to stay in a difficult place just a little bit longer. That is the lesson that God has for us so many times. And I'm so excited for this trip that you guys have coming up, but I just want to challenge you. It might be different than you're expecting. It might bring with it some difficulties that we weren't necessarily thinking about when we were getting excited about it. And those are the experiences you have to be thinking about too. But you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the last thing you want before you get ready for this trip is to be thinking about difficulties or suffering. You don't want to suffer. I'm probably wrong. It would probably be best 
for you to forget everything that we just talked about. Unless you think there might be something that God's really trying to say to you right now. During the Second World War, there was an Allied bomber flying over enemy territory. The plane was flying low enough so that the pilot believed the plane could not be seen on the radar. But at the final moments of approach, the pilot saw anti-aircraft fire streaking up in the direction of the plane, and the pilot knew he was not going to be able to get out of the way. And in fact, he felt the impact of several of these shells hit the plane. Shells that were designed to explode. But then something very strange happened. There was no explosion. The shells did not explode. So the pilot turned the plane around as fast as he could. He flew the plane back to safe territory, landed the plane, got out, and he and the technicians very carefully opened the fuel tank of this plane. And in the fuel tank, they found several unexploded shells. Very carefully, they opened one of the shells. And inside this shell, where there should have been explosives, instead, there was a note. A note that had been written by a prisoner of war working in a Czechoslovakian prisoner of war camp where they made these shells. And the note said, this is all that we can do for you right now. Can you believe that? That that prisoner working for who knows how long, probably at great danger to himself, secretly putting those notes in there instead of the explosives, never knowing if it was actually going to do any good, and all the while saving who knows how many lives. That is such an example to me. I hope it's an example of encouragement for you. Let me just share one final thing. This is a very short poem that was written by a woman, a Christian woman, who throughout her life experienced great physical difficulty and pain and illness. And many of her poems are, in fact, about living through difficult times and suffering, but knowing that ultimately God is the one who's in control. This is a very short poem. There's only one difficult word in this poem. The difficult word is in the first line of the poem. The word is mendicant, and the word mendicant just means beggar. And the poem is called The Thorn, and it's written by Martha Snell Nicholson. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one precious gift that I could call my own. 
I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. I said, this is a strange and hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Pray with me, please. Thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege that we have to send this precious group of students on this trip that they have coming up next week. Thank you, Lord, that you have already prepared the way for them. You know the people who they're going to meet, and you know the experiences that they're going to have, and you also know if there's going to be difficulties along the way. And I pray, Lord, that you would use those difficult times just as much as the wonderful times to bring them closer to you. We pray this, Lord, in your precious heavenly name. Amen. Thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage, www.swchs.org. Click on Student Life and Encounter. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, keep your eyes fixed, not on speakers, teachers, or institutions, but on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith.